0: Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H., Y. Kellerman, Sade, 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxes listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with returning guest, Shal Magid, about his latest book, The Necessity of Exile Essays from a Distance which explores questions related to Jewish identity, Zionism, anti-Zionism, Jewish intellectual history, Shaul's own intellectual development, including his experiences in the Israeli counterculture, and much, much more. If you've listened to my previous conversation with Shaul Mageed, which dealt with the political thought, life, and influence of radical right-wing Zionist Mir Kahana, you'll know that Shal is a fascinating and thought-provoking thinker, and I think you'll find this conversation to be truly engaging. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it with Shal Magid, author of The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really happy to have on. He is uh, a favorite of mine. We've spoken in the past. He previously wrote a book about Rabbi Mir Kahana, which I think was just absolutely a banger, as the kids would say. Uh, welcome back to the show, Shal Magid, distinguished fellow in Jewish studies at Dartmouth College and author of the new book, The Necessity of Exile. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So I I know there's a lot going on right now in terms of Israel, Palestine, uh, and we'll get into that. But maybe first we could talk about the title of your book. It's very evocative, The Necessity of Exile. Uh, Why that title and what are we talking about when we talk about exile? Because this book sort of deals with what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be a Zionist. The relationship between Zionism and exile. So, give us a, an idea of what that title is meant to evoke.
1: Well, uh, thanks a lot for that, by the way. And um, so, it's an, yeah. I came to the title because uh, one of the things that, um, for someone like me who's not really a historian of Zionism, I'm really a kind of you know I work in Jewish thought, Jewish philosophical theological texts and history. And one of the things that always struck me was the way in which the concept of exile was often seen as something negative, something that had to be overcome, something that was a consequence of, from the Jewish perspective, divine punishment. And that in some way, uh, one of the things that Zionism sought to achieve was to, in a way, end this long period of Jewish exile, which they understood to be an exile from the land, from the land of Israel and Jewish uh, presence or sovereignty or, or autonomy in the land of Israel. And in a certain sense, it's really connected to Messianism and very often from the perspective of Jewish history, the end of exile and the coming of the Messiah are kind of fused together, that the the coming of the Messiah heralds the end of exile. And Zionism came up with a different idea, which is that we can actually end exile without the Messiah, uh, or at least without a traditional understanding of the Messiah. And so in a certain sense, one of the kind of fundamental principles of Zionist ideology was this notion of what in Hebrew is called shlilatagola or the negation of the exile or the negation of the diaspora that in fact Zionism or many Zionists I should say not all but certainly many felt that there was an incompatibility between the existence of a Jewish state and the continued robust existence of Jews living dispersed and my, you know, my my book, which is really a kind of a critique of Zionism, begins with the assumption that maybe abandoning the notion of exile or seeing exile as necessarily a negative thing is something that we really need to think again about.
0: At the very beginning of the book, in the introduction, uh, you reference an interview with a lifelong Zionist uh, Gershom Scholem, who said. Zionism was a calculated risk in that it brought about the destruction of the reality of exile. And you point out that he added that the foes of Zionism certainly saw the risk more clearly than we Zionists. Why did you feel the need to include that quote? And and maybe you could talk about why you included it. Well, I included
1: that I, you know, I'm a person who who uh, works part of my academic profile works in the Jewish mystical tradition. So, Gershom Sholem is somebody that's a very important figure for me. But he is also a very important figure within the kind of history of the pre-state and then post-state Zionism. He he comes move, he moves from Germany as a te- as really an adolescent, as a late adolescent, or maybe he was in his early twenties to Palestine in 1923, and very much a Zionist, very much a critic of his father, who was a kind of German-Jewish assimilationist. And so for Sholem, Zionism was really, in a certain sense, on the cutting edge of of history. And it was the Jews' re-entrance into history. And yet, Sholem was also quite aware of the complexity of, of what the Zionist project was suggesting it was was wanted to accomplish, largely because Sholem was really a student of Jewish history, and he understood the dangers of messianism, the dangers of, as he said, kind of like ending the reality of exile. It's funny that he uses the term ending the reality of exile instead of ending the exile itself. And I think that Sholem's notion that, you know, there was a lot of ambivalence among Jews in Europe until the 1930s, but even afterwards, but certainly in the teens and 20s and into the 1930s, there was a lot of ambivalence, certainly among traditional Jews of Zionism. They really saw it as potentially a very kind of dangerous, volatile act of, in a certain sense, defiance against Jewish history and a defiance against this idea that the Jews were exiled by God for a particular reason, and that exile would continue until the Messiah comes. So I think it it was very pointed for me that Shalom recognized that the foes of Zionism really understood the dangers of Zionism more than the Zionists did. Now, it is true that once we move into the 1930s and certainly into the 1940s, with the rise of hitler and then the beginning of the second world war zionism went from becoming an ideological possibility to almost a necessity and at that point all of the you know all of the back and forth and all of the kind of discussions about the questions of the end of exile started to fall away and you entered into this period of emergency where it was just how do we get as many jews out of europe as quickly as
0: we can If you could, could you speak to, I guess, the evolution of Zionism over time? Because I feel like the sort of Zionist socialism of years past isn't really a a force in Israel as much anymore. There's been almost this turn towards, I guess, messianic nationalism, uh, especially amongst the far right in Israel who have gained some prevalence now. Now, that prevalence may be put in danger because of what has happened since uh, October 7th. I think there's a lot of Israelis that are very upset with figures like Ben-Giver and Smotryk and, of course, Netanyahu himself. But how did Zionism evolve from you know these roots in socialism uh, to the sort of messianic nationalist turn, as you put it?
1: Well, I mean, Zionism is an idea... I, first of all, I think it's it's important to note that Zionism as an idea was really kind of at war with itself right from the beginning. If we look at the early Zionist Congresses in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the, there were a lot of very, very contesting factions that were far apart from each other, from from groups that were more kind of utopian socialists to groups that were interested in culture, to groups that were interested in politics, to groups that were more leaning towards fascist movements. I mean, it really, it, it, it really, it, 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 the trajectory of Zionism was always very, very complex, and there was never really a Zionist consensus, per se, in the early days. It was primarily a secular movement of Jews from East, from, from Central Europe and then later Eastern Europe, but, uh, Central, Central Europe for sure, who basically saw that there was a Jewish problem in Europe. There was a Jewish question after the Jews were emancipated in Europe over the course of about half a century. It became very clear in a number of instances that the emancipation and integration of Jews into Europe wasn't working. Jews weren't being accepted. And and the very concept that we know today of modern anti-Semitism is really born from the emancipation. It was from the way in which Europe reacted to the emancipation of the Jews. Not all of Europe, obviously, but some of Europe reacted to the emancipation of the Jews. And so you had this thing called the Jewish question. And people like Theodor Herzl, and he wasn't the only one, came up with this idea that he was experiencing the emergence of nationalism in Western Europe in the late 19th century, and that Jews could also have their form of nationalism, and that creating a Jewish state or creating some kind of a Jewish autonomous enclave in the Middle East and the land of Israel was the obvious choice, would in a certain sense be a win-win situation. It would be a win situation for the Jews because it would enable them to experience a sense of national self-determination, and would be, and it would be a win for much of anti-Semitic Europe that really just didn't want the Jews there. So that's how it was originally posited, but then socialists got involved, and culturalists got involved, and language, you know, and linguists got involved, and you had that Zionism is not only a political solution to Europe, but rather, a solution to the kind of modernization of Judaism outside of this traditional framework. So you had the cultural Zionists on one hand that wanted to create a new Jewish culture that were not really that interested in a Jewish state, certainly not immediately and then there were political zionists who were saying no a jewish state is really what has to happen immediately and then you had the socialists who wanted to create some kind of utopia utopian socialist society through the kibbutz movement in uh you know in the land of israel what you really didn't excuse me what you really didn't have that much of at that early period were religious Zionists. There were some religious Zionists, but not the religious Zionists that we see in people like Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich. I mean, if Jews from, even, even religious Zionists from the aughts and the teens of the 20th century would somehow kind of land in Israel now, it would be to some degree unrecognizable to them. The kind of messianic Zionist, religious Zionism that took root is something that really only happens after the establishment of the state and even after a couple of decades after the establishment of the state in the late 1960s and early 1970s so you know israel moved from being a somewhat uh, somewhat of a humanistic utopian socialist experiment that had deep illiberal roots because it was very ethnocentric To a movement that is dominated today by a certain kind of messianic religious ethos, not, certainly not among everybody, not even the majority, but in terms of the political culture now that, that didn't exist then. And, and then the final, the final piece to this that I think is worth mentioning is the way in which Zionism early on never really seriously confronted the fact that there were many, many hundreds of thousands and then millions of Arabs who were living in the land of Israel who were not going to get on board with this project. So it became known in Israel as the Arab question. In other words, what do we do with the fact that the majority of the inhabitants of the land of Israel or from the river to the sea, however you want to say it, were Arabs until 1947. It's not until 1947 that Jews become a majority in the land of Israel. So how was a Jewish state going to be established when the majority of the population were non-Jews? So that that gave birth to this, this idea called majoritarianism, which is that the, the primary goal of the early Zionist settlers was to create a Jewish majority in the land of Israel. And they recognized that unless they were able to do that they would never be successful in creating this thing that they, they they wanted to create called the Jewish state and and that by the way the the unanswered question of the Arab quest of the Arab
0: question it plagues Israel to this day one thing I wanted to get into was you know I've had this discussion before and I think your book deals with it in various ways but I've sometimes get the impression, and I I know I've had friends of mine who consider themselves liberal Zionists that very much disagree with this, but I I think there may be something within Zionism itself that lends itself towards, as you put it, sliding into ethno-national chauvinism. What is that? Why is there uh, always that danger of the Zionist narrative sliding into that sort of ethno-nationalist chauvinism that you speak of?
1: Well, um, the ethno-national part of it is not really the sliding. The ethno-national part of it is really the description of the project. The chauvinism is the sliding. So, in other words, why does an ethno-national movement seem to consistently Uh, with certain breaks in between, slide into this kind of chauvinistic, dominating um, ideology. I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, I think that ethno-nationalism in general lends itself toward that kind of inclination, especially when that ethno-nationalism has a large minority or in certain cases, a majority who are not of that ethnic group. So how, you know, and that was always the case that was always the case in, in, in the Zionist project. There were always going to be a, a large number of non ethnic, eth, non ethnics in that state. How are they were going to be dealt with? And the second thing is, you know, I think we have to recognize that Zionism comes out of a very, very long and deeply embedded um, state of uh, Jewish oppression and persecution over many centuries and the suffering that the jews felt and the historical memory of that suffering and let's you know setting aside the holocaust from, 19, from 1939 to 1945 just setting that even setting that aside there is that experience of oppression and persecution which if you then take that mentality and then you flip it into a uh, a a a state of sovereignty over another population, it really does lend itself to that kind of chauvinistic view. Now, if then you add in the proximate history of the Holocaust uh, and that the State of Israel was founded only three years after the end of the Second World War, as 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 a as a thinker named Hannah Arendt, who's somebody that I'm always thinking with because I think her her work is extremely important on these questions, uh, she basically said in 1948, "This is just not a good idea. You can't take a traumatized people, a a dispossessed people from uh, you know from DP camps, and then." give them a state and have them rule over another people who consider them their enemies. How is that not going to be disastrous? I mean, she wasn't necessarily against she wasn't against the establishment of a Jewish state. She just thought it would happen too quickly. But the truth is, you know, that's the way reality was. I mean, you had an incredibly difficult refugee problem. Right. Hundreds of thousands of Jews that were in DP camps all over Europe other countries that were not willing to take in those refugees. And and the establishment of a state was really, in, a, at that moment, a kind of almost necessary solution to that problem, but Arendt was able to see a little bit further down the road, the ways in which that was not going to um, work out the way many thought it would.
0: I wanna talk a little bit more about the influence of Arendt, or at least the, the way you grapple with Arendt and Phil that she's important to grapple with, because I, I don't know Arendt as much on on the question of Israel, but I've been critical of some of her other writings. So what is it about her work on Israel that you find is important to grapple with?
1: Arendt is, to my mind, one of the more interesting political theorists of the 20th century, not having to do with Israel per se, because Arendt, as you as you rightly said, Arendt has a number of different careers, right? She has a period of time where she wrote about Jewish issues, about Zionism, and then she really abandoned it pretty much by the early 1950s. But she was really interested in nationalism, and she was a critic of nationalism, and she was a critic of the notion of states because, in part, states create, by definition, stateless peoples. And she herself was a dispossessed stateless person, losing her status in Europe, and then traveling to France and traveling to the US. So I find that she is both honest and also engages in the question of nationalism as a construct in a way that certainly many of the people who are interested in the Zionist question didn't really engage with. And I, and I think that that she, she you know, she put herself out in ways that made her the target of a lot of vitriol, specifically in the Eichmann trial and her Eichmann in Jerusalem book. But I think that 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 uh, if you go back to her writings on Zionism, you see that from my perspective, she had a lot of foresight to see the dangers that that could arise from this kind of nationalism. And she herself was a victim of that in the rise of Nazism.
0: If you could, I believe that you'd like to describe your book as being not necessarily anti-Zionist, although you would say in some sense it is. But you would say that it's almost counter-Zionist. And I found that very interesting because in our last conversation, uh, you said to me that you view someone like Kahane as being a counter-Zionist. So maybe you could explain what you mean by uh counter zionist and also how you would maybe differ from kahana
1: no i don't know if i i I mean i don't remember calling kahana counter-zionist i i felt like kahana was in some way a kind of reactionary post-zionist i know he kahana felt that zionism was a failure because it never was able to fully extricate itself from liberalism right and in a certain sense, if Kahana came back today, he would probably be more satisfied with today's Israeli government than the Israeli government that he was a part of back in the 1980s, which was still pretty much a labor left-leaning liberal government of sorts. So when I when I, you know, in in, in kind of coining this term counter-Zionism, my point is to say that I, I want to try to carve out a position that is not anti-Israel but is anti-Zionist. And by anti-Zionist, I don't mean that the state of Israel shouldn't exist. Whether it exists as a Jewish state or whether it exists as a, a, as a state of all its peoples, whether you call it Israel, whether you call it Israel Stein, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter to me, really. What matters to me is that Israel is the Jewish homeland. The land of Israel is the Jewish homeland. And Jews have a right to live there freely as Jews and be able to flourish as Jews and create a Jewish culture. It also happens to be the homeland of another people. And I, I feel like if it's going to be a zero-sum game, which is it's the homeland of the Jews and not the homeland of some other people, which I think basically is baked into Zionism, that I don't think the project can really work as long as there's a large population of non-Jews who are living there, unless those people are willing to live according to some kind of other, other status. So when I say anti-Zionist, you know, when people hear the term anti-Zionist, they really feel it means anti-Israel. And I want to make a suggestion that Zionism was an ideology that was perhaps necessary in its time. It was born at a particular moment in European history. It was born at a particular moment in Jewish history. Um, it became tied into religious history. It was able to inspire at, in the early period. And in the later period, it was able to kind of give a space for Jews to be able to exit a very difficult and dangerous diasporic situation and create a country of um uh create a country that you know was a, was a Jewish state. I don't know if, and, and here's kind of in a certain sense, here's really the rub of the book. I don't know why the state of Israel has to be so wed to the ideology that brought it into existence and why the state of Israel can't say at this point, you know, Zionism was important, it created the state, it created the culture, it revived a language, but now we're living in a society where over 20%, almost 23% of the population is not Jewish. Maybe we have to think of another political framework in which we can engage in a kind of coexistence where non-Jews can be as equal and as rightfully members of israeli society as jews and that's why i'm calling it counter zionism like it's basically it's basically let's think of another way why should we be bound to this ideology it, it, as if it as if without it the state doesn't exist uh, you know i mentioned in a couple of places in the book in the in the late 19th in the late 18th century late 19 and mid 19th century i'm sorry as a way of justifying kind of uh, making claim to the entire Oregon territory, a guy by the name of James O'Sullivan developed this ideology that he called Manifest Destiny, that white Christians were destined to rule over the entire continent, over the Native Americans. And this was an ideology that really, really in a certain sense pushed the Western conquest of the continent in the during the American Indian Wars. Now, most Americans no longer adhere to a Manifest Destiny ideology. I mean, certain white nationalists do, I'm sure. But Manifest Destiny went the way of many political ideologies. It had its moment. It did its work. I mean, the work was a disaster and tra- tra- tragic work, and that it resulted in the genocide of an entire civilization. But setting that aside, it became a nation of immigrants. America became a nation of immigrants, to, to quote the title of JFK's famous book. Um, so I'm, I, I'm just trying to kind of decouple the state from the ideology as a way of thinking of a better way to, um, to create a future for all those who
0: live in the state of Israel. One thing that has come up with at least a few of my guests since October 7th, and even before that, is a lot of people say to me, well, we shouldn't really focus so much on this ideology known as Zionism or anti-Zionism. They'll say we should be focused on a two-state, or we should be focused on ending the bombing campaign that's happening right now, uh, or getting the hostages back. Do you think they're on to something with that? Or do you think that we still need to talk about Zionism as an ideology, or at the at the very least, in terms of what it means for Jewish identity?
1: Well, that's a good question. I, I would say yes. I mean, the argument against would be to say, look, we're in an emergency situation now. Israel experienced a horrific atrocity on on October 7th. And they're engaged in a process of, of reprisal against that atrocity. There are over 200 Israeli citizens and other nationals that are being held hostage by Hamas. So there are some really nuts and bolts thing, nut and nuts and bolt things that have to be, you know, dealt with on a day to day basis, which is really about saving lives and preventing the continuation of mass death. So I understand that and i'm sympathetic to it i think one of the things that i find troubling is for someone like me and you know i'm an academic so i'm you know i'm trained to think historically both forward and backward that uh october 7th as horrific and categorically you know categorically uh, or categorically horrific as it was october 7th didn't drop from the sky Right? It 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 has a context. It existed it doesn't not to not this is not to justify it, but to say that the conditions that were created that brought about this particular kind of genocidal attack on on Israeli sovereign territory happened in a particular moment in a particular context. I mean all human endeavors have context. Nothing really is 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 exists in a vacuum. And I'm not going to say that the context is Zionism, because it's not, obviously not, but it's also to say that a particular iteration of Zionism, a particular articulation of Zionism, has become you know, dominant in Israeli society, and not just with Netanyahu, and not just with Ben Gvir. I mean, the occupation is 56 years old. The siege of Gaza is 16 years old. These things didn't happen yesterday. They didn't happen last year. They didn't happen five years ago. And I think that, in a sense, um, this doesn't mean that Israel is to blame for what happened. That's certainly not true. But the conditions that created the possibility, not the inevitability. And that's, I think, a very important distinction that people don't like to make. I don't think that what happened was inevitable. I think that what happened was made possible by certain conditions. I think Israel has to go back. And I think a lot of Israelis are going back and saying, well, we have to rethink this thing because You know the war will end one day enough people will be killed that israelis will think that okay this is enough we've gotten you know we've we've had our you know know, revenge so to speak and 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 we've kind of in a certain sense gotten back a certain amount of pride and honor because i do think this is really a war in part not only to destroy hamas yes also but this is a war of honor for israel israel was humiliated as a country it was deeply humiliated as a country a terrorist organization planned for a year an attack against israel's sovereign territory it was able to break through the fence overrun army bases and kill 1200 people before The army was able to adequately respond that's a deeply humiliating and and I feel I feel that humiliation, both as an American Jew as an Israeli citizen and as a Jew. I feel deeply humiliated and and I think that there's a sense of honor that needs to be addressed through the through this kind of reprisal so but but that's going to end at some point, it has to end these wars end and the question that everybody is asking everybody is asking this question um what happens what do you do with a devastated you know Gaza strip with over a million you know dispossessed people uh they're not going anywhere this is where they live this is where they've been living for a long time i don't really think my view and I'm sure there are many of your listeners who'll disagree with me. I don't really think that eradicating Hamas is possible. I don't know what that would even actually mean. I mean, you can certainly kill a lot of people. You can certainly destroy its capabilities for a period of time, but as long as the existent, as long as the realities of Gaza that existed before October seventh continue afterward. Why would one think that another generation wouldn't arise with the same kinds of feelings? So I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, it, it's very funny. Um, in a movie, The Gatekeepers. I don't know if you saw, which is really an interesting film that's about the history of Israel from the perspective of a series of. Um, Uh, ...intelligence officers and generals. There was one person named Avram Shalom, who was the head of Israeli security, I think from the late 1960s to the early 1970s, and he said something that always stuck with me. He said, the problem with Israel is that it has tactics, but no strategy. In other words, it's always reacting to things that are happening. And I guess I, I, I was thinking of his comment, he's no longer alive, but I was thinking of his comment in watching the war. What exactly is the strategy? I know what the tactics are. We can see the tactics on our computer screen. What's the strategy? Do
0: you also think there's a danger in some of the rhetoric that is being bandied about right now? What I mean by that is, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we have to retaliate against Hamas for what happened on October 7th. But then you get some rhetoric that says, well, actually, what we're doing is we're liberating the Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, In some ways, it reminds me of colonial rhetoric. I I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. Not in some
1: way. I mean, I, I find that absolutely ludicrous because it doesn't remind you of colonial rhetoric. It is colonialist rhetoric. I mean, that's what's kind of so strange. Look, I understand and I'm not a pacifist. I understand Israel has to go into Gaza and has to do what it has to do in order to be able to weaken, at least weaken Hamas and destroy its capabilities. I get that. But don't call it liber- a war of liberation. You can't say that you're going to liberate somebody by blowing up their house and killing their family, because they're not going to feel liberated. And and the idea of somehow, you know, it's funny, it really is in a lot i find in a lot of more liberal zionist circles it somehow makes people feel better to say we're actually liberating them from this you know terrorist regime <laughs> look at the pictures of gaza you're not liberating anybody right you're destroying people's lives and you're destroying people's possessions you can argue that you have to do that and we can you know we can have an argument about what's you know appropriate and disproportionate you know uh you know attack that's fine but this language of liberation i find to be so just cynical in some way and and and, and really it, it's exactly you know even uh, it's not only that you know you you know you, you just said about colonialist language you know when is when some israeli general or or a politician gets on the television and says, well, you know, we're civilized and they're savages. Like that kind of language, that's like classic colonialist language. Like, like just go back to the French in Algeria. I mean, I don't know why, um, I don't know why the Israeli spokespeople don't see that they're slipping into rhetoric that is just fodder for the people that are making those, these kinds of claims against them.
0: I, I I just, I have no answer. Since you mentioned liberal Zionism, what is the core critique that you have of liberal Zionism? Because there's been other voices that have criticized it, but what is your core critique?
1: Basically, my core critique is, um, and this is really the f- first chapter of the book, has liberal Zionism exhausted itself. The core critique is that Liberal Zionism has always been in a somewhat of a defensive posture. I think it's more so today than in the past, and that is, it's a liberal ideology that is um, intent on defending what is, to my mind, an illiberal project. And one can say that that may not be true of Zionism in its early period in the utopian socialist. but I, 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 I don't think it's provocative, I hope it's not provocative to say in 2023, Israel is an illiberal state its government, and it's not just its government of the elections of November 2022. The last five or six elections before November 2022, and arguably the last 10 elections before November 2022, the Israeli electorate has moved away from Israel as a liberal project to Israel as an illiberal project. Now, we saw from the protest movements that that's not necessarily completely true of all Israelis, and that is certainly the case. There are many, many Israelis who don't abide by that, but I'm talking about the electorate, how the elections pan out time after time. And we should also remember that the protest movement, which was not really a left-wing movement, It was not even really a liberal movement, it was a centrist movement to save certain kind of democratic institutions. Mostly for Jews and that's why you know you'll notice that the occupation was not a central theme in the protest movement and that was intentionally so, because if the the occupation became central. And this is something that somebody who was an activist in the occupation movement told me from Tel Aviv. If we put the occupation center stage in the protest movement, we lose half of our constituency.
0: I wanted to add to that. I I don't know what your opinions are on this, but I I know a lot of people will focus in on Netanyahu. And I I think there's a very good reason for that. But, um, you know, the Likud party has a history uh, dating back much further uh, than Netanyahu, and there's been other right-wing figures in Israel's history. And I, it just seems like uh, the Likud party and under Netanyahu's leadership, Israel has gone more and more to the right. Do you think that people have to acknowledge the history even before Netanyahu um, came to power so many years ago? I think his first term was in 96. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you want to comment on that?
1: Yeah, look, I I I understand that Netanyahu has become the kind of focal point of a lot of anger and animus of the Zionist mainstream and the liberal, certainly among liberal Zionists, but of the Zionist mainstream. I I, I understand that, Um, but I really, I think that, that Netanyahu is the symptom more than the problem. I think, as you said, the problem goes much deeper than Netanyahu, and it goes much deeper than the settler movement. It really, I think, and this is really why I think the book is relevant, it really goes to the Zionist project itself. Now, obviously, Netanyahu takes it in a certain direction, and Netanyahu is really, in a certain sense, an extension of Zeb Jabotinsky in the revisionist Zionist movement. That now in the 21st century has merged with the religious Zionist movement. And that offers a very, very kind of toxic mix of reactionary politics. I mean, it's it's not it's not inconsequential that Trump is more popular than Israel than any other country in the world. Now, obviously, because Trump allowed Israel uh, to do a number of things, be moving the moving of the embassy and all those things, all those things are true. But there's something else. There's something else about the way in which uh the direction that the country has moved. And this is because of in some way the intractable the intractable problem that has always been the problem of Israel um from its inception. And that is the Arab question. What about the Palestinians. What do we do with a large minority of non-Jews who see them who see Israel as having stolen their land, who see themselves as being a discriminated, persecuted minority under, in many cases, certainly in the West Bank, not in Israel proper, under military law as opposed to civil law. And 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 you know, it's that problem that Netanyahu was able to capitalize on to offer fairly draconian solutions, which at the end of the day, as we see post-October 7th, were not really solutions.
0: One thing I really wanted to talk with you about was, uh, you talk a little bit about being enmeshed at various points in the sort of um, Jewish or Israeli counterculture uh, of the past. And I don't think people know much about that counterculture. Uh, You know, there was an odd lost film that that got recovered a few years ago called An American Hippie in Israel that was made, I think, in the 1970s. But what did you gain from that experience of being involved with the Jewish and Israeli counterculture? And what was that counterculture, I guess?
1: Well, I think it's really countercultures. From, From my experience, it was a number of different countercultures. I mean, one of the countercultures, look, I was not raised as a Zionist. I mean, my parents and really my grandparents, but my family comes from a kind of socialist workman circle, a background. I went to workman circle summer camps as a kid. I don't remember ever talking about Zionism at home. It wasn't, not, not for or against. It just wasn't a subject. Uh, I, I, I have no rel, I had no relatives in Israel. So I, I really came to it as a, as a neophyte in a way. Once I got interested in my Jewish identity, it wasn't because of Zionism. It was because of. Uh, Judaism as a spiritual path. And when I went to, first went to Israel in 1979, I didn't go to Israel as a Zionist. I went to Israel because that's where the land of Israel was. I mean, that's where, that's where people were practicing that form of Judaism that was attractive to me. So I got very sucked into the kind of, um, ultra Orthodox Jewish societies in Jerusalem that had had its own kind of counterculture of people that came in from the outside and that were seeing, you know, Hasidism as a really alternative countercultural lifestyle, which in many ways it is. And I became very enamored by that, I became very involved in that, I became very enmeshed and embedded in that and spent years there kind of really experiencing what I consider to be a kind of true alternative spiritual path that I simply had not been exposed to growing up. At a certain point, I I became, you know, disillusioned with that world for a variety of reasons. I mean, it has a very dark side of xenophobic, misogynist, so on and so forth. And I started to kind of like you know, look outward in the country. And it was, you know, the country in the late 1970s, early 1980s was was pretty open. You were able to really go almost anywhere. You were able to hitchhike to Jericho or hitchhike to, you know, to, to Ramallah. And I, I you know, I, I then became kind of exposed to the settler movement, which was actually quite young then, and spent a lot of time in settlements and with my with my first wife thought about you know moving to a settlement and 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 the settler culture really started to become very romanticized for me so whereas the ultra orthodox culture was about conserving the past the settlement culture was really about building the future really feeling like you know they were living on the precipice of history and I became very pulled into that, and there was something that was very um, enlivening about that. And I started studying the writings of Reb Abraham Isaac Cook. I, just, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in different different yeshivot, and there was something that 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 attracted me. But then again, I talk about in the chapter. I have a chapter in the book called "My Tragic uh, My Tragic Love Affair with Zionism," where I talk about. Spending a Shabbat in Atsmona in Gaza, interestingly enough, it was one of the one of the settlements in Gaza. And it was magnificently beautiful. I mean, just really exquisite beaches, sand, ocean. I mean, you know, paradisic. certainly for somebody who was brought up in the New York suburbs like I was. But I started to see there was something deeply, deeply wrong from my perspective within that otherwise beautiful romantic worldview. And that is that, again, the Palestinian, the Arab was not really part of the story. It was almost like they were part of the background. You know, they were part of like, oh, you know, there's a tree, there's a hill, there's a rock, there's a, an Arab like going home with vegetables to his family. There was something that was just so distant from it as if here we're on the precipice of history and those people are not really part of that. And I never was able to overcome that and I began started to be, can't become more and more disillusioned with with that as well. I mean, I eventually kind of left orthodoxy and, you know, went into academia for a variety of reasons, but there's this sense of there's a sense in which I felt like I was able to taste firsthand different varieties of the Israeli Jewish countercultural anti-Zionist and then Zionist experience, which I think formed the views that I have today.
0: Just a few more things I wanted to cover with you, if you have the time. Uh, You have a very, I I think it'll, for some people, be a provocative chapter entitled The Grand Collaboration, where the boycott and settlement movements unwittingly work towards the same end. So you're talking, of course, there about boycott, divestment, sanctions, which is uh, the pro-Palestinian movement, and then the Israeli settler movement. Uh, What do you mean by they're working toward the same end? Well, it's very
1: interesting. Um, you know, what the 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 impetus for that chapter, people might remember a couple of years ago, was the Ben and Jerry's decision not to sell their ice cream to settlements over the Green Line. And there was a whole brouhaha about it that, that, that Ben and Jerry's was being anti-Zionist because they were depriving the Jews in the settlements of like, uh, you know, Chubby hubby ice cream or whatever it is, right? Meanwhile, they could, oh, they could go into a supermarket in Tel Aviv and buy it. It was not that they were that they were doing that and that they were boycotting the settlements. And what what was so interesting about that phenomenon was that, in a sense, Ben and Jerry's was saying, look, we believe that the settlements on the other side of the Green Line are illegal settlements. And we don't want to sell our product to places that we feel are illegal that are built on Palestinian land or whatever. And those and, and so we're not boycotting Israel. And then the detractors the, the would say, oh yes, you are, because you're making a distinction between between uh, uh Karyat Arba, which is a settlement in Hebron, right? You're making the distinction between Carriat Arba and Tel Aviv. You're gonna sell your ice cream in Tel Aviv, but you're not gonna sell your ice cream in Karriat Arba. And their response is, yeah, we are making a distinction between those two places. And they say that's a boycott. So, in a sense, the detractors of Ben and Jerry's are saying. We don't really believe in the green line. We believe that Carriat Arba is like Tel Aviv. And therefore, if you're not gonna sell ice cream in Carriat Arba, it's as if you're boycotting and not selling ice cream in Tel Aviv, even Tel Aviv. So what's so what was so what was so interesting about that is if you look at the BDS movement, the BDS movement is doing the same thing in reverse. The BDS movement is saying, we're boycotting Israel, meaning we're boycotting Tel Aviv because we don't think there's a difference between Tel Aviv and Karyat Arba. So in a sense, both those that were criticizing Ben and Jerry's and those that were promoting BDS are both saying something similar, which is the Green Line doesn't really exist. And and in a, in a way, what I think was interesting about that was I would understand if. It was people in the settlements that were saying, oh, the Green Line doesn't exist, because a lot of the settlers would say the Green Line doesn't exist. That's precisely the point. But the fact that it was many liberal Zionists who were criticizing Ben and Jerry's, it's the liberal Zionists who should be maintaining that the Green Line does exist and that Cariad Arba is not Tel Aviv. And yet, that's not what they were saying in criticizing Ben and Jerry.
0: Why do you think that is? Um, Because one thing I've heard from liberal Zionists is that I've been criticized in the past by liberal Zionists who will say to me, you cover the most violent aspects of the settler movement, but you leave out that there's a lot of people that don't even recognize themselves as settlers. So younger Israelis that are buying land past the green line, that don't even know that they're buying land past the green line. And essentially, I guess what they're saying is that the settlement project has been so normalized you should focus less on the most violent settlers what what do you make of that argument look this was this this was a governmental decision there was a governmental
1: policy and by the way not only of likud governments but of labor governments too and i think the settlers are right when the settlers say oh no it's not only likud that has been pro settlement Rabin was pro-settlement, Olmert was pro-settlement, even Paris was not anti-settlement. So the settlements are not the product of the Israeli right, the settlements are the product of the Israeli center. And the decision was made to normalize the West Bank by basically creating suburbs of Tel Aviv or suburbs of, you know, of, of Netanya as settlements, such that, as you say, I'm just living in a suburb. I'm driving to work. I'm 15 minutes away, 20 minutes away work from driving from Tel Aviv. OK, I'm over the Green Line, but what's the Green Line? It doesn't really mean anything. And so in a certain sense, you're right. The, the settler movement was successful because it became post-ideological. Yes, there are ideological settlers who are living in settlements, some of them deep in Samaria. That are radicalized and some in some cases violent. And then there are settlements that are post-ideological. They're they're cities. They're not, you know, like a city like Efrat. I mean, I don't even think most of the people in Efrat consider themselves living in this as a settlement. I mean, many of them don't even consider it an occupation. I have friends from Efrat when they write to me about the occupation, they always put the occupation in quotation marks. Right, because and, and these are these are liberal people, these are not ideologically driven people, so I think that that in a certain sense. The for the settlement project to be successful and but what does successful mean, and this is very important for the settlement project to be successful means it is intractable it can't be undone and in order to do that it required a large enough number of people to be able to live there, not because they were ideologically committed to the settlement project, but because they got housing stipends, they got larger houses, they were able to have a garden or backyard. I mean, suburbia, with the creation of the West Bank as suburbia, it was a brilliant, brilliant move on the part of the settlers and on the part of the government, a brilliant move. And now we're in a situation where Depending upon how you count, there are probably over 750,000 Israeli Jews living on the other side of the green line. They say by the year 2030, 2035, maybe a million Israeli Jews will be living on the other
0: side of the green line. At that point, it seems like it's over. Last thing I want to touch on with you is uh, one thing that I've gotten from at least some guests, but not others. But one thing that some people will say to me is, you know, all this talk about anti-Zionism, especially among people in the Jewish community that are that call themselves anti-Zionist, it's sort of. uh, I guess some people feel that it is off base because I will be told that, you know, most American Jews are pro-Zionist at this point. That things like the Bund or the Jewish autonomist—that's a thing of the past, and. I get kind of iffy on that kind of logic because I think that it's important to look back at thinkers like, say, Hans Kohn, who was for a bi-national state. I think it's important to look at post-Zionist thinkers. Um, Do you think something is lost when we sort of say, oh, we can shelf all these older ideas because that's not what the Jewish community believes now?
1: Very good question. I'm, I'm actually writing a review of a book by Jeffrey Levin called The Palestine Question, Israel and American Jewish Descent, 1948 to 1978. I think it's a great book. You should have him on your show. He's, it's really, really good. Um, I could send you his, his, his contact info. I, I would say, I would, I would tweak it a little bit. I think most American Jews, a large majority of American Jews are pro-Israelists. What it means, you know, how much many of those American Jews know about Zionism is probably very little, but that's fine. I, I don't necessarily think they have to. I mean, they're basically pro-Israelists. They support the Jewish state and their Jewish identity is tied into Israel advocacy. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that what is lost by excising an entire alternative history of the Jewish relationship to Zionism. Talk about Hans Kohn. you can talk about, uh, you know, the AJC, or the American Council for Judaism, or people like Don Peretz and William Zuckerman. I can give you a list of names that you've never heard of, right? Because they've been totally erased. The danger of that is, not just because it's historically irresponsible, The danger of that is is it's coming back, And, and what we're experiencing now among young American Jews either in things like If Not Now or JVP or other organizations or Not In My Name or Standing Together, whatever they are, is that the ambivalence, antagonism towards Zionism and toward the Israel project in its treatment of the Arab minority is returning in a generation that never heard of any of those names of those other people,
0: right? But they're actually recreating the wheel. Right, right. I, I was gonna say I was interviewing um Daniel Boyerin recently, who I saw gave a, a blurb to your book. Right. And you know, he's deeply influenced by um Simon Dubnow, um, who was involved with the Jewish Autonomists, right? And I, I feel as if you know, some people, younger people now are reading Boyerin's latest book, The No State Solution, and then rediscovering this whole line of Jewish autonomous thought. So I think there's a lot of um, lines of thought that are now coming back to the surface. Even someone like Peter Beinert, who I think is really advocating at this point for, for a re-separation of cultural and political Zionism, that's not a new development that has existed in the past as well. And not only is this in the past, and look, I think, you know, Daniel's book
1: and Peter's work, and they're both really great in what they're doing. I think that, I mean, Jeffrey Levin's book, but not only, not only Jeffrey Levin's, Levin's book, going back and reading these people who were deeply invested in the Jewish future, in many cases, deeply knowledgeable about Zionism, fluent in Hebrew and Arabic. Writing about the Palestinian question and the Palestinian problem in the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s, going back and reading those people and, and, and learning from, from a group of people who, who gave their lives to offering an alternative. And again, many of those people would not consider themselves anti-Zionists in that they were against the Jewish state. They were against the kind of Jewish state that they saw unfolding. And so, I, I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of interesting things, scholars, Matthew Berkman, Jeffrey Levin, Marjorie Feld, who are really actually going back to the archives and are reconstructing a forgotten past, which I think could be very important because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, these young JVP, if not now, they're just like, they're sucked up into kind of some woke leftist, progressive. I think that's a mistake. I'm not saying that some of that doesn't exist. That's what's in the air. But I think that they're plugging into something that Jews have been aware of for over a century.
0: I also wanted to ask you in closing, what do you think it means to be Jewish in, in the 21st century? Because I, I think there's a lot of people that would define it differently. I think there's a lot of people that would define uh, how they identify with Israel or what Israel means to them. I think there's people that would define that differently, you know, if you were to pull them on their own views. And, you know, I think we live in a scary time where we have people like Donald Trump saying, you know, American Jews are not supportive enough of Israel as if, you know, that's required of them to be Jewish. Do you think we're at a crossroads? where there's going to be a a discussion in the Jewish community about what the identity of Jewishness means?
1: I think there is. And I think that the danger of, you know, going back to Gershom Sholem's quote about the, you know, the the anti-Zionist or the non-Zionist knew it more than the Zionist. I think one of the dangers, I don't want to say dangers, I would say occupational hazards of Zionism is that it too easily could become has become, in some cases, but could become
0: just a substitute for Judaism. And that- I I think we've seen this in some ways, by the way, when, you know, I'm not a fan of it, but there are people that will say, you know, these JVP members need to be, quote unquote, un Uh, And, you know, they're basically saying, you know- if you don't support Zionism, then you can't be considered right. Jewish.
1: Yeah. Right. So the article by Gil Troy and Nathan Sharansky, un-Jew, that was published in Tablet, and I, I in one of my essays called I think un-Jews, un-Jews, bad Jews, un-Jews in the book is engaging partly with that article. Right. That is, in a certain sense, for me, a tragedy, because in a certain way, when Judy, when Zionism or fidelity to this Jewish state becomes the litmus test. Of legitimacy as a Jew, I think we've basically usurped or eclipsed a three thousand year tradition called Judaism. However, it's lived in many different ways. You know, it's very interesting. There's a there's a very, very well known. Um, letter that, that Ben David Ben-Gurion wrote to Jacob Blaustein. Jacob Blaustein was a non-Zionist. He was the president of the American Jewish Committee. And he wrote a letter to Blaustein and he said, I do not expect or require the fidelity of non-Israeli Jews for Israel. It wasn't, it's not exactly the quote. Basically he's saying Jews that live in America O Israel, do not owe Israel their political fidelity. And and it was it, it's very interesting because if you would take that sentence now, I don't I didn't get it exactly right, but if you would take that sentence now and say it to somebody in the in the in the world or in the Jewish world, they would say that's anti-Zionist. You're an anti-Zionist if you don't basically. Pledge your fidelity to the Jewish state, you're anti This was what Ben-Gurion said
0: to Blaustein when he was the prime minister of the country. I also wanted to ask here, uh, just really quickly, you know, I know that your book, I, I think it is designed towards fostering a, an intra-Jewish debate. What do you want to say to, I have a lot of Palestinian American listeners, what do you want to say to them at this moment? That's a great question. I, I,
1: I thought about that a lot. And I think I write in the introduction that um, I, I don't include the Palestinian perspective in the book, not because I don't think the Palestinian perspective perspective is important, is crucial, is justified, but because I had another agenda about what I wanted to do, I, exactly like you said. And I, 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 the only thing I, I could say in response to your question is that just as i think jews have to begin to think anew creatively about questions of identity and nationalism i think the palestinian people have to do as well i think that both sides look both sides are not going anywhere i think it's pretty clear that that's the case what life is gonna be like for each side, we don't know, but they're both not going anywhere. And I think that the Palestinians have to, and maybe this is post you know, maybe post-October 7th, have to really think about their own national identity, their own sense of self, their own sense of culture, their own sense of, of what it means to be in the world in the 21st century, and and their own sense of recognizing that. This is a land that they're going to have to share with another people. And my book is trying to engage that conversation for Jews. And if it could be an inspiration at all for, for Palestinians to do the same, I think that that would be an added plus for me.
0: Do, do you think it's still, do, do you hope that your book is still considered relevant? I, I know it was just released, but I, I, I the thing I keep hearing whenever you bring up Uh, say, a book like yours or even a book like um, The Haifa Republic. Uh, I forget the author. Omri Baum. Omri Baum. People will say, especially after October 7th, they'll say all of this now is irrelevant. It's pie in the sky. It's fantasy. What do you want to say to those people that have just written all of this off?
1: On the one hand, it's understandable. On the other hand, I think that the problems – that Israel faces the problems that Jews face today on this question are no different than the problems that they faced a hundred years ago. I and and, and the, these are the problems that I'm addressing. So I'm not a tactician. I'm not a politician. I'm not a policy person. I'm not a military historian. So I can't really engage the kinds of well, you know the the as somebody said to me in a panel, I was giving with a with a colleague at Harvard a few weeks ago, well, what's the solution? That's always a very common question. What's the solution? And my response to her was, in this particular reality, in this particular paradigm, there really isn't a solution. And unless we wanna just commit genocide, and I don't think anybody really, I, I shouldn't say anybody, I don't think most people really wanna do that. So outside of that, the only solution is to rethink the paradigm, because we're just we just keep we just keep doing the same thing again and again and again, and it doesn't work. And as we know, that's Einstein's definition of insanity.
0: Well, Sean McGee, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, can you tell my listeners how they can get a hold of the new book, and uh, what do you hope they get out of this conversation? Uh well the book is called The Necessity of
1: Exile, Essays from a Distance. You can get it at Iin Press, A Y I N Press, or you can get it at Amazon uh or any other bookseller. Um and thank you for buying the book if if you buy the book. I, I, I really what I what what I would hope people would get out of it is to, especially in our post October seventh reality to be able to think with a wider lens about the issues that Jews, Israelis, the Muslim world, and Palestinians face in trying to make sense of of living together in this very narrow piece of territory in the world, Uh, a very important piece of territory because of its in religious history and 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 to really you know to 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 i know it's kind of um cliche but to kind of think out of the box out of the out of the conventional ways in which people think about solutions to um to start to have different kinds of conversations thank you again
0: Shaul McGee. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shal Magid and that you'll check out his book, The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I need you, the listener, to support this show on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I also have a PayPal that I can give you if you shoot me an email, if you want to donate to the show that way, uh, just shoot me an email at parallaxviewspod at protonmill.com. I only have one advertiser on this show, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, but otherwise, this show is entirely listener-funded, so I really, really need your support especially in these times where I'm working at a pretty breakneck pace. I may be slowing down production a little bit this month. Uh, I do need a break once in a while, Uh, but I have a few shows in the can, so I'm not sure the production will slow that much. In any case, I really do need that support from you, so patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com. Slash parallax views, and with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax views with Jeralax View. to Parallax Jeralax views, with Jeralax The way out is not simply to say, Don't do it, just to prohibit. It. Is nothing else if we don't do it others will be doing it like crazy so you know we have to confront the problem
1: but no basically basically i'm i know of the great anxiety problems
0: new forms of control but it's also new forms of freedom this is why i always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic community or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.